Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome and thank you for joining us on another episode of Ask the Experts right here on Talk 1370. This is a show about your health, your life, and much more with our rotating cast of experts. If you missed any of our shows in the past and you'd like to catch up, you can do so by visiting our website, talk1370.com slash experts. And of course, if you have any questions for any of our experts, feel free to email us, asktheexperts at talk1370.com. Today's expert is Dr. Slaughter. And Dr. Slaughter is here with sinus and snoring specialists. Their practice is located in North Austin, right by Palmer and Mopec. Dr. Slaughter, welcome back to the program. Oh, glad to be here. You guys also deal with uh, allergies, correct? Yeah, it's actually critical to manage allergies uh, to be able to even successfully treat conditions like snoring, like sleep apnea, uh, such as uh, conditions like sinusitis. We like to say our work typically can make you good, but it's the allergy management that keeps you good. Mm -hmm. So once we've made someone, for example, structurally open and made their sinuses ventilate well and we've resolved their sinus condition, the best way long-term to make sure they get to keep that result identify what they're allergic to, and successfully manage it. So how do you find out if you have allergies and how do you find out what you are allergic to? Well, it's pretty simple. Of course, we always start off with a great history physical exam. I, I see all the patients myself and evaluate them. We're typically going to look inside the nose with a little nasal endoscope. We're going to do a little mini CT scan of the nose and sinuses. We see this all the time. Patients are two years, three years, four years into allergy management. And that step has been missed, that critical initial evaluation. And they've really had a structural problem or had chronic sinus infection all those years that they thought was allergies. And that's the reason why they haven't gotten better. Mm -hmm. So once we've done that evaluation, if it looks like allergy is their primary issue, we're going to advise allergy skin testing, which we do in our office. Now, skin testing has come a long way. Uh, we can do skin testing now without needles. It's what's called a multi-pressure device. So this little piece of plastic with little beveled edges is dipped into little wells and the wells contain concentrated allergens that we may be allergic to. Trees, weeds, grasses, molds, danders, cockroach, dust mite. And then when we press that on the skin, typically done on the back, within 15 minutes, we can read those results and see what the patient's allergic to. That sounds a lot less painless than what it, what it used to be. Oh yeah, I mean, it used to be a big deal. You know, a million needle pricks uh, sometimes uh, on patients where the testing even turns up negative can be very dissatisfying. So look, this is something that doesn't hurt. Uh, it's very quick and it's very simple. So what are allergies? I know a lot of austenites may experience this, especially in, uh, in winter with cedar, uh, known as cedar fever. So, so what are allergies? Yeah, so I'm gonna pull on my full-blown sort of nerd hat, science hat on this one. Really, an allergic reaction is an immunological reaction. It's where your body perceives that allergen, let's just say it's cat dander, as an invading parasite. And so it mounts this intense allergic response. The allergic response calls, causes these little cells that exist within the tissue of our nose and sinuses called mast cells to literally explode. 
And when they explode, they release all of these chemicals of inflammation and all these chemicals of inflammation even recruit a bunch of inflammatory cells. It's kind of like an army, an immunological army gets recruited to do the attack. Now, it's a misinterpretation that our body is having that immunological reaction. And as opposed to an invading parasite, it's the same dang cedar fever we're gonna see every day for the next eight weeks. And mm -hmm. so it just produces so much swelling and irritability and drainage and congestion, headache. Of course, if it's plugging your nose up, it also produces things like snoring and poor quality sleep or exacerbates sleep apnea. So it all, it's all tied together. And so how do you know if we have a sinus infection or allergies? That's a great question because it feels the same, right? So right. sinus pressure, drainage, congestion. Now, typically when you have allergy, historically what you'll say is it occurs around the same time of year that it lasts for weeks or for months during that period of time. The, usually the secretions are relatively clear. Uh, usually when it's an infection, it may happen sporadically at different times and doesn't seem to correlate with specific allergy uh, exposures. It's usually a very, very strong rapid reaction. And then a lot of times the coloration of the secretions are green or yellow. Um, and obviously when a person has a sinus infection, if they get appropriate antibiotic therapy, it'll also cause a resolution, unlike allergies, which when you take an antibiotic for those symptoms, there really isn't any change in the symptoms. Gotcha. Um, so how do you, and I think we spoke about it uh, already, but how do you find out what you're allergic to? Well, what we do is we lay out a very comprehensive panel of allergens in the office, 60 things. Okay. So that's all the major trees, weeds, grasses, molds, danders, even food. And when we press it onto the skin, the skin is going to show us that the patient is allergic to those particular things. Now you do that by measuring the amount of reaction. So if there's a three millimeter or greater a whelp that essentially occurs on the skin, then you know the patient has a significant allergy to that particular item. Is this the only type of allergy testing that's available? No, actually the allergy testing would be done in, a, in variable ways. There's the traditional needle allergy testing, which is similar to what I'm describing. It really doesn't offer any significant benefit. Um, it takes longer, it hurts, and there's an increased risk that the patient's going to have uh, an allergic reaction or more severe allergic reaction to the testing. Then there's this uh, you know, much more simple multi-pressure device we use nowadays, which is highly accurate. There are patients that can't have skin testing, either because they're too young to understand the testing or in certain medical conditions, for example, patients that um, take beta blockers and can't get off of them. And in those patients, we'll do RAST testing. RAST testing is a blood test. It's not as accurate as the skin testing, but it can give us a good understanding of what the patient may be allergic to by looking at IgE levels inside the bloodstream specific for certain antigens. So which allergy test would you say is better? Well, there's no question skin testing is the better way to go. And I think the way we do it in the office where, you know, it's simple and safe and doesn't hurt is the right way to do it. We will still do blood testing though. Typically children that are less than three really don't tolerate skin testing well. And in certain medical conditions, as we've mentioned, I'll, I'll recommend doing the RAST test. Also, if a person's ever had um, the RAS test is the blood test. If a person had previous testing or has a history of having an anaphylactic reaction, which means a severe allergic reaction to skin testing, we'll use the blood testing instead. And I, I know you mentioned uh, skin testing doesn't hurt, but how long does the test generally take? Well, blood testing is a simple blood draw. Okay. So you'll go to a lab and they'll draw the blood and that's it. But it'll take a while. You may take a week or a little longer than that to get the results back. The skin testing, it takes about five minutes to actually place the uh, multi-pressure device on the skin of the back. 
typically 15 to 20 minutes of letting it sit there before we read it. And then there's a period of time there, about 10 minutes or so, where we're actually interpreting it and writing it down. So from start to finish, usually the testing process is only about 45 minutes. And are there any side effects of allergy skin tests? You know, where it's positive on the skin, it's going to itch. And so right afterwards, a lot of times patients may take a little Benadryl or a Zyrtec for about an hour or two, maybe a little itchy, but that's about it. Fortunately, it doesn't, you know, bother you or hurt. You just feel a little itchy. And can children be tested for allergies? Yeah, we find in our office with the device that we use, since there's no needles, that at about age three, most kids can understand what we're doing and why we're doing it and will tolerate it quite well. Younger than three usually, or just depending upon the child, if they're going to have a problem understanding why we're doing it, uh, can't cooperate because of that, then we'll opt to do the blood testing. How many allergens do you test for? So it's important the panel is very comprehensive, and so we test 60 different allergens, and that's across the spectrum. So that would be cedar, for example, but all of the common trees, grasses, weeds, molds, danders, cockroach, dust mite, and food. Mm-hmm. I... When you say cockroach, it's the insect, right? Yeah, it's actual cockroach. That, I did not know you could be allergic to that. Yeah, so there's two broad categories of things you can be allergic to. There's what's called uh, annual, and then there's what's called perennial. An easier way to say that is there's things that come up once a year, like, for example, spring trees, and you may be allergic to that, or cedar comes up once a year, you're allergic. And then there's things like mold and dust mite and cockroach, and they're there year-round for the most part. In your home. Yeah, yeah. in your home, exactly. They're in your pillow, uh, so in your bedspread. And so those ones are exposing you to the allergen year-round. And um, and again, uh, how long would it take to get these results? Well, that's what's nice. Unlike the blood test, you get the results right away. So when you come into our office, 45 minutes later, you've had your testing and you know if you're allergic and you know what you're allergic to. Dr. Slaughter, we have time for one more question before our first break. Uh, so what if you know that you have allergies, but the allergy test comes out negative. Yeah, I I actually wrote a big blog about this because it's a very big misunderstanding. Many times patients say, I got so sick of my allergies. I finally went to the allergist and I got tested and it turns out I'm not allergic to anything. And they told me they can't help me. And it's it's not true at all. What they have is LAR. That stands for local allergic rhinitis. That means they have a very intense, true allergic reaction, but it's isolated to the membranes inside their nose and sinuses and it won't show up on skin testing or blood testing. Now we can help those people. We use allergy drop therapy in our office. Allergy drops are typically formulated based upon the skin test results. But if the skin testing is negative because the patient has local allergic rhinitis, we do this weird thing where we actually just listen to them. (laughs) When are you bothered? What types of things cause allergic reactions? What seasons does it bother you? What exposures do you have in your household environment? And we formulate the drops based upon their history. Dr. Slaughter with the Sinus and Snoring Specialist. Again, you're listening to Ask the Experts right here on Talk 1370. We're going to step aside for a quick break. and We'll be back with much more on allergies right here on Talk 1370. Talk 1370. Welcome back to Ask the Experts right here on Talk 1370. Today we're sitting down with Dr. Slaughter with the Sinus and Snoring Specialist. If anything that we've spoken about so far today has piqued an interest with you, you can go ahead and find out more information on sinussnoringent.com. Again, that's sinussnoringent.com. You can also give the Sinus and Snoring Specialist a call 
512-601-0303. And they also give out a lot of information on their blog, also located on their website. If you would like to catch up on past episodes with Dr. Slaughter, you can do so by visiting talk1370.com slash experts. There we have episodes about the difference between snoring upper airway resistance syndrome and sleep apnea and the other episode is about the treatment that's offered for those different syndromes but today we are speaking about allergy treatment options uh dr slaughter would you let our listeners know what are the allergy treatment options sure yeah basically i put that in three broad categories number one is avoidance So that is, if you know you're highly allergic to X and X is very high that day, not the best day to go for a run. If you go out and mow the grass, when you come back inside, taking a nice hot shower, using a saline irrigation to rinse your nose, immediately getting out of the clothes that you're in and having them go through the washing machine. You know, when you go up to the attic, wearing a microparticle filtration mask, these are common and common sense things that you can do to reduce your exposure. Um, when, when it comes to treatment, there are two other options. One is medication and the other is immunotherapy. Now, medications we're familiar with, uh, antihistamines, topical nasal sprays, they don't actually prevent allergy. They allow you to have allergy and then they try to cover the symptoms up. And they can be relatively effective. Um, they have different mechanisms of action. But basically, when you're looking at a scientific standpoint, they've looked at the allergic cascade that occurs And they have mechanisms of actions to block some of those steps. So they're trying to just reduce the amount of runniness or congestion or post-nasal drip or sinus pressure uh, by using those medications. Immunotherapy is very different than that. Immunotherapy is identifying what you're allergic to and then exposing your body to what you're allergic to on a regular basis to stimulate your body to develop antibodies antibodies that will specifically bind to and block the allergic reaction prior to it occurring. And that immunotherapy is in those two categories, allergy shots and allergy drops. And why would you do an allergy shot or drops versus allergy medications? That's a great question. So think about it this way. Medication is not preventing allergy. It just lets it happen and tries to cover the symptoms up. Immunotherapy shots or, or drops actually block it from occurring. So it's much more successful. Allergy medication is forever. So if you're 32 and you're going to live to your 100, that's a whole lot of years that you're going to be using medication. Right. Um, and immunotherapy is not that. If you use it consistently, in most cases, immunotherapy will be successful within three years, which means you do not need medication and you also do not need the immunotherapy anymore. Allergy medications have side effects. Uh, dryness, blood pressure problems, prostate problems. So they do more than what they're intended to do. Immunotherapy is not a medication, so it doesn't have side effects. So in the long and short of it is well done immunotherapy um, is a much better choice long-term for allergy treatment. Would you be able to break down the difference between allergy shots versus allergy drops? Yeah, and that's an important thing to do because there's a lot of myths about Mm -hmm. that out there. So look, they're both the same thing. They stimulate your body to develop an, uh, an antibody to block the allergy. You can think of it like a vaccination. Allergy shots have some significant drawbacks. You have to drive to the doctor's office once a week or twice a week, that's a pain in the butt. Nobody wants to do that. You have to actually get a shot. The shot itself hurts and there's a significant local reaction where it occurs. In fact, it can be difficult to advance the strength of the therapy to make your body develop the antibodies just because that local reaction can be too severe and it just prevents the doctor from being able to advance it. 
Allergy shots also cannot include things that were not positive on your allergy skin testing. So we previously talked about local allergic rhinitis, allergy that's isolated to your nose and sinus and doesn't show up on skin testing. It's just a, a, an issue associated with insurance, but when it comes to allergy shots, even though you know you're allergic to ragweed and ragweed season's miserable to you every year, there's no ragweed in your shot, which is a considerable negative. So now drops are the opposite of that. You do them at home, it's once a day, uh, it's under your tongue. Um, it's not something you have to leave work for or drive to the doctor's office for. There's no shot, so there's no pain. You don't have to wait a year and try to build up to a level that's strong enough. Typically within a week, it's strong enough to be developing the antibodies. And it can include things that you know you're allergic to but did not show up on skin testing. So you got a dog and your dog causes allergies. Your dog's negative on the skin testing. The allergy drop can include that. It sounds like it's just uh, with the drop, it's building up a, a habit. It's part of your routine. Yeah, that's. I tell her, my patients, you know, hey, put the drops next to your toothbrush, and when you go to bed at night, after you finish brushing and flossing, put the drops underneath your tongue and hold them for two minutes and swallow. And what that's going to do is consistently stimulate your immune system. Compliance is the key when it comes to immunotherapy. And compliance is difficult with shots, but it's not difficult with drops. Would you say there are any other benefits of the allergy drops? In, in this sounds kind of strange, but in most cases, it's actually cheaper. So each time you drive to the doctor's office, obviously you're spending your gas money and wasting your time to go, but you also pay a copay each time you go. And then there's also a charge each time they mix it for you for the injections. So it wouldn't be uncommon, for example, to have a $20 copay each time you go to get a shot. So you're really talking $240 probably in just copays per quarter. Uh, allergy drops in our office are you know, much less expensive than that. So not only is it more convenient, um, but typically... Um, it's something that's going to be cheaper for you. And are allergy drops, uh, are they safe for children? Yeah, actually, it's the position of the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy, so that's our governing board, that there is no age limit for drops. In the very young children, typically less than three, uh, skin testing or even blood testing is not really going to show you what they're allergic to. The allergy is predominantly isolated to the nose, so it's usually done by history. So we find out from mom and dad the times of years and types of seasons, but we'll have one-year-olds that are on them. And especially in our field, we're dealing with a lot of frequent upper respiratory tract infections in kids, recurring ear infections. Maybe they're needing tubes in their ears. And the best way to get away from that recurring upper respiratory tract infection to make sure we don't need another set of tubes is to manage the allergies effectively. Dr. Slaughter, with allergy drops, uh, could you explain how they work? Yeah, very simple. So what you're going to do is put three drops of the mixture underneath your tongue every night before you go to bed, hold it for two minutes and swallow. Underneath the tongue, there are special cells. They're called longer Han cells. They're immune presenting cells. They see that and they recognize it as a foreign body and they present it to your immune system to stimulate your immune system to, to make antibodies. Now, once those antibodies are being made to the things that you're allergic to, the next time you get an exposure to the cedar or to the cat or dust or mold, rather than your body reacting to it and developing that whole cascade of the allergic reaction, the antibody binds to that allergen and destroys it. And how long does it take uh, for allergy drops to relieve symptoms? Typically within six to 12 weeks of starting the allergy drops, you'll be noticeably improved. Most patients by six months on allergy drops will feel like they don't need allergy medication anymore. And what's really cool is that in most patients by 36 months, if they're consistent in using them, 
they won't even need the drops anymore. Their body has learned its lesson and it continues to produce the antibodies from that point on. And are there any side effects of the allergy drops? Well, this is what's nice, you know, unlike an antihistamine that gives you a dry mouth or, you know, decongestants that can raise your blood pressure. This is not a medication. So there are really not going to be any side effects from it. You can have a little tingling or a little swelling underneath the tongue, especially in the first few weeks when you start them. In the first few weeks, you may actually have a little increased allergic symptoms while your body is learning to develop the antibodies. But there's not side effects as you typically see in medication. And again, uh, insurance, would insurance cover the, the, the cost of allergy drops? So all the allergy skin testing typically is covered by insurance. So whether you choose shots or drops, the testing to find out what you're allergic to is covered. Allergy drops, and this is unique to the United States of America because of our FDA, allergy drops are not covered by insurance. It is everywhere else in the world. In fact, almost everywhere else people use exclusively drops. They don't use shots. That's why in our office we formulate the drops to be less expensive even than using your insurance to have shots done because we want people uh, to be compliant with it. We know it's so difficult to be compliant with shots. So it's usually just a little over a dollar a day, less expensive in most cases than taking Zyrtec or Flonase or Astelin or yep. Singulair, less expensive than driving to the office and paying a copay. Yeah, they are an allergy medication is expensive. So yeah, exactly. So it, in, both in the short term and the long term, um, the financial aspect of it is favorable because once you get started on the allergy drops, it'll typically be less than you'd spend on allergy medications. And unlike allergy medications, they're also not forever. So the cost actually goes away. Now, uh, we have time for one last question before we wrap things up here. Uh, what do you do if your allergy test is negative, but you feel that you have allergies during certain seasons? Yeah, well, first off, and I think we kind of touched on this before, if you've been told you don't have allergies, but you know you do. So, you have terrible symptoms that are exactly like an allergy, runny nose, post-nasal drips, sneezing, watery, itchy eyes, congestion. You take medications, Zyrtec, Flonase, et cetera. You feel better. And then you go get testing and it's negative and they tell you you don't have allergies. Don't believe it. You've got that LAR, that local allergic rhinitis. So in our office, what we do is we have got a really nice intake form and we run through that with our allergy clinician and the patient identify by history what you're allergic to. And we'd recommend using allergy drop therapy based upon the history. Uh, look, if you totally just don't know, we can include allergens from each major category. So we'd include, for example, cedar and about two or three of each of the major categories, trees, weeds, grasses, mold, standards to make sure you're covered. Dr. Slaughter, is there anything else that you would like to add? Yeah, basically I'd say, look, don't, li don't live with allergies. Austin is the allergy capital of the world. Um, there's this little thing people may not know about. It's called the allergic march. The allergic march means if I'm allergic right now only to cedar and I don't start on immunotherapy, I don't start on allergy drops. Next year, I may be allergic to cedar and oak. And the following year, I may be cedar, oak, and mold. And then I may start becoming allergic to my cat. So allergies actually create further and increasing allergies to other items over time. So getting in earlier, finding out what you're allergic to now, getting on you know, allergy drop therapy to be able to block that allergic march is a really smart way to handle it long-term. And that's it for this segment of Ask the Experts. Don't go anywhere. We have more coming up right here on Talk 1370.
Welcome back to Ask the Experts. Right here on Talk 1370, I'm your host, Matt Alvarez. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Slaughter with the Sinus and Snoring Specialist. And before we go any further, if, if you would like to find out more information about Sinus and Snoring Specialists, you can visit their website, sinussnoringent.com. Again, that's sinussnoringent.com. Or you can call them today, 512-601-0303. Dr. Slaughter, we'll just start off with this first question. What causes snoring? Yeah, this is a conversation I have with patients uh, all day long. Snoring is actually really common. So 45% of adults actually snore and about 25% of adults snore nightly. So it's actually a really common problem. Uh, There's really four big reasons why someone snores. Nasal blockage is usually the primary driver So nasal congestion, sinus issues, problems inside the nose, that's the big issue. A long, floppy, soft palate, the uvula, the little dangly guy in the back of the throat, that's oftentimes also a culprit for snoring. People that have large tongues, a large tongue base, uh, or the tongue is too large for the size of the jaw, that's another big culprit. And then the fourth is weight. Uh, People don't like to hear that, but most of us will really know We add 10, add 20 pounds, drop 10, drop 20 pounds. We really notice a change in the snoring. So Mm -hmm. when we evaluate people, we're really looking uh, on physical exam and also with some really sophisticated diagnostic equipment we have in the office. What are the specific reasons why they snore? And we look at those areas. I feel like that first question I should have asked you, why do I snore? Because (laughs) I didn't even know I did it until, you know, I was told about Mm -hmm. it. So... And I, would, I imagine how most people find out that they actually do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, it's a really common phenomenon for people to come in the office and say, hey, I, I'm engaged now, and it turns out I snore, and I, I don't really think this engagement's going to go all the way yeah. through to the marriage <laughs> unless I fix it. You know, what can I do for it? And, and that's the fun in it for me because, as it turns out, really, when we correct this problem, we correct two people's problems. Mm-hmm. If you snore, typically your sleep quality is not good and you're powering through it. Um, So it's bothering you in a lot of ways, but it also bothers the bed partner. So we get to make two people happy. Yeah. And sleep is the most important thing that a human being needs to do. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, we spend, um, you know, a lot of our lives in bed asleep. Why do we need that? Mental, psychological, and physical restoration. And when you don't get that, there's just a laundry list of things that go wrong. You know, simple things like being grumpy or, you know, work performance, things like that. And also very serious things uh, such as hypertension, diabetes, obesity, atrial fibrillation, heart attack, you know, a, a laundry list of things you don't want. We will, you know, jokingly tell patients if we don't address this issue, you'll end up as sort of an old, sick, fat person with a bad heart mm-hmm. and nobody, want, nobody wants that to happen. Absolutely. So what can one of our listeners uh, do at home to stop snoring? Well, there are simple things you can do at home uh, that we refer to as sleep hygiene. So let's think about the worst situation. In other words, if I really wanted to snore tonight, what would I do? Well, I'd make sure the previous night I really didn't get a good night's sleep. So I'm exhausted when I go to bed. And I'd have a really big, nice glass of bourbon or four beers or whatever your alcoholic beverage choice is before I go to bed. And then I'd sleep flat 
and I'd sleep on my back. If you put all those together, you're going to get somebody who doesn't snore at all and they're going to snore. So avoiding alcohol within two hours of bedtime, sleeping elevated, sleeping more on your side to prone is important. Having a regular sleep schedule so that you are not exhausted when you go to bed. And we can get into the details on this, but the nose is typically the primary driver of snoring. So if you're not managing your allergies, that's a big issue as well. And I think we've been dancing around this question, but is snoring serious? Yeah, it is. Now, basically, if you snore only, let's, let's just define this. Snoring is noise that's made because of resistance to airflow when you're sleeping at nighttime. Upper airway resistance syndrome is the same, except for the degree of resistance and snoring is loud enough and there's enough vibration that it actually prevents the, the actual snorer from getting deep sleep. They'll tend to have more light sleep and less restorative sleep. And sleep apnea is the same again, except for the resistance is enough that there's cessation of airflow. When there's no air movement at all, it drops the oxygen concentration in the blood, and that's when you're going to have a cascade of, of really significant health issues. It puts a strain essentially on the cardiovascular system when you have sleep apnea. So simple snoring can be serious only in the sense that it can damage your relationships. Mm -hmm. Upper airway resistance syndrome can damage relationships and really not make you at your peak performance during the day because your sleep quality is poor. And then sleep apnea does both of those, but it also is just going to damage your health long-term. And only because I just went home last weekend and I noticed this, and I'm going to forward this episode to my father, why should someone that snores see a doctor? Yeah, this is something we thought of when we started this practice. We we thought to ourselves, gosh, this is an incredibly common problem and it really bothers people's lives. Why is there not one location where you can go and get an answer and get a resolution? And why does it seem by a million different advertisements that there isn't really any cure? Because, I mean, the rule of thumb is if there's 50 ways to fix it, none of them work, right? Mm -hmm. So what we discovered by talking with patients for a long period of time is this serious, significantly uh, serious problem. People don't go see the doctor because, number one, they don't want to have a sleep lab study. They don't, they don't want to go to a sleep lab and have all the wires and all the inconvenience associated with it. And they've heard that CPAP, which is the pressure mask on the face, is the only way it can be fixed. And they know they're never going to be able to do that. So they take this potentially serious problem and leave it unevaluated. Why go get it evaluated? Well, in our office, we've gotten rid of those two, two things. We, you don't need to go to a sleep lab. We do home sleep studies. And we have lots of options for therapy besides using a CPAP. The reason to go is for those three things we've described. Look, it's bad for your personal relationship. It's bad for your sleep quality. And it's bad for your body to be having snoring or potentially worse, like sleep apnea. And, you know, getting it evaluated, a simple office visit to get on a long-term path to correct that is really wise to do. Again, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Ask the Experts right here on Talk 1370. We're sitting down with Dr. Slaughter with the Sinus and Snoring Specialist. To find out more information uh, from the Sinus and Snoring Specialist, you can visit sinussnoring.com. 
ENT.com. Dr. Slaughter, we have just about a minute before the break. We can probably touch on this uh, briefly, but what is upper airway resistance syndrome? Yeah, so this is just describing the easiest way to say that is if you're watching someone with upper airway resistance syndrome, they snore loudly and it looks like their sleep quality is poor. If you talk to them, they're going to say they wake up in the morning and they really don't feel rested. Mm -hmm. If they had a chance, they'd nod off on a couch. Uh, They have excessive daytime sleepiness. So it's something that's bothering the bed partner with noise, but it also prevents the person from reaching deep levels of sleep. That's referred to as REM sleep, slow wave sleep. But those deep levels are the ones that give you the mental, psychological, and physical restoration. And without it, an unrestored person just doesn't feel good during the day. It's not as severe as sleep apnea, which has greater health consequences such as heart attack and cardiac arrhythmias. But look, to you and to your bed partner, (laughs) it's a serious issue uh, because it's bothering both of you. Again, this is Ask the Experts right here on Talk 1370. We're sitting down with Dr. Slaughter with the Sinus and Snoring Specialist. If you have any questions, any concerns, if you want to find out more information, you can visit sinussnoringent.com. You can also give them a call, 512-601-0303. And that's it for this segment of Ask the Experts. Don't go anywhere. We have more coming up right here on Talk 1370. Welcome back to Ask the Experts right here on Talk 1370. Today we're sitting down with Dr. Slaughter with the Sinus and Snoring Specialist. We're speaking about the different treatment options for snoring and sleep apnea. Uh, Dr. Slaughter, before we went on the break, we spoke a little bit about the non-surgical options for sleep apnea. But what are the surgical options for sleep apnea? Yeah, this is what we uh, offer in our office. We have an office procedure room. We have anesthesia come to the office and provide IV sedation. So first off, the surgical options are really very minimally invasive. They don't require general anesthetic and they're done just in the office setting. The focus of them is to open the nasal and sinus airway and to make the soft palate that vibrates and produces the noise higher, tighter, and stiffer. Inside the nose, everything that opens the nasal airway will reduce snoring and sleep apnea. So we do a non-surgical balloon sinuplasty to open up the sinus outflow tracts. That's where about 50% of the airflow goes through. It also helps resolve sinus pressure, sinus headaches, and sinus infection. We also can adjust the septum now A lot of people may have heard of a septoplasty. Think of it as kind of a big operation. But nowadays, with a tiny telescope in the nose, we can do a three-millimeter incision and adjust the septum back to the midline. That means there's no packing or splinting or black and blue or bruising. The turbinates, the structures inside the nose that filter and humidify and warm the air we breathe, they're oftentimes very swollen from chronic allergies. And we can literally shrink them just like liposuction make them nice and skinny and small, and then manage the allergies afterwards to keep them that way. So those three things together uh, typically are done to make the nasal airway optimized. 
In the back of the throat, we can trim the uvula, the little dangly guy in the back of the throat. And then we have a special mixture we inject to the soft palate that contains alcohol and lidocaine. And it stimulates the soft palate uh, to elevate and stiffen and lay in some scar tissue. It becomes less long and floppy and vibratory and higher and tighter. Those two things are done, typically takes about 15 minutes to do them. Uh, the patient is in the recovery area for about 15 minutes, typically able to be in their car going home after 15 minutes after the procedure. I'd probably say better than 90% of patients are able to work the next day. Um, so it's designed around the idea that we all have lives to live and things that we need to do the next day, and you can do that. It sounds pretty, well, I don't want to say painless, but convenient. Yeah, the nasal procedure itself I would describe as painless. It typically feels like kind of like a three to five day episode of having a mild cold. Mm -hmm. Most patients don't require any pain medication to have the advanced balloon sinuplasty procedure done. The soft palate is sore where we trim the uvula, and do the stiffening injection, but you're talking about something that is manageable. So you, your voice is normal. You can talk. The diet's relatively normal. You're going to work and doing what you normally do. Uh, the sore throat lasts for about two weeks. You may be a little grumpier than you normally are, uh, but not something that's going to slow you down. And so how do maybe our listeners or a patient of yours, how do they know which treatment is the one they need? Yeah, this is the reason why you spend all that time going to medical school and uh, you know doing your residency. When I do the exam in the office and do our diagnostic testing, the mini CT scan, the high-definition nasal endoscopy, I'm going to know what are the specific reasons in you? Why, why is it that you're having a snoring problem or sleep apnea problem? And then we dress it and tailor it specifically. So, uh, you know, whether it's a deviated septum or chronic sinus issues or a long floppy soft palate or a large tongue base, each of these things are identified on an exam and then we're going to come up with a plan that's perfect for you. Again, if you're just tuning in, we're sitting down with Dr. Slaughter from the Sinus and Snoring Specialist. You can check out their website, sinussnoringent.com. Again, that's sinussnoringent.com, or you can call them today, 512-601-0303. Dr. Slaughter, we spoke about some of the treatments, and I think maybe one of the questions that may be in my head or in our listeners' mind is does insurance cover these treatments? Yeah, that's obviously an important question. It, typically, insurance is going to cover this without any problem. In most cases, it's actually very favorable from an insurance standpoint because it's an office procedure. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to getting things done, usually the large bulk of the charge comes from being at a major hospital chain or an ambulatory surgery center. So having this procedure done in the office is typically going to be A, covered by insurance, and B, actually less expensive for the patient than traditional procedures. And what is the downtime for these treatments? The vast majority of patients, better than 90% of patients, will be working the next day. It's, I've had a, a number of patients that shows you how hard people work sometimes that have the procedure and actually work the same day. So this is designed around the idea that, you know, you should be up and running the next day and being able to handle your normal activities. And you did mention that these procedures are generally performed in your office, correct? Yeah, we've really spent the time to try to make all of the evaluation, all of the diagnostics and the therapy all in one location. So we've got a very sophisticated procedure room 
everything that would be present in any typical ambulatory surgery center. It has the same team that you would expect. So there's a board certified anesthesiologist. There's also a circulating nurse. There's a certified scrub tech and myself and a recovery area and recovery personnel. So it is done in our office procedure room. And then uh, typically sometime usually around 15 minutes after the procedure, the patient is usually feeling good enough to go home. The reason why that is, it's not general anesthetic. So IV sedation, which is the way we handle this, it's sort of the perfect in-between. You're in Margaritaville. You don't remember anything. You have no <laughs> recollection, no pain, no anxiety, but none of the negatives of general anesthetic with the bad sore throat and the nausea and the protracted recovery. And um, I imagine these procedures are safe. Oh, it's exceptionally safe. So this is something we do week in and week out. Um, and we have everything in place necessary to be able to handle any situation. Of, you know, we've never had any complications or problems with any of our patients uh, having the procedures in the procedure rooms. Safety is the number one factor for us before we ever even got started doing these procedures. And I think we touched on it earlier as well, but we can remind our listeners the success rate for these procedures. Um, what, what do they look like? Yeah, it's exceptionally high. So whenever you address each of the factors, the nose, the soft palate, the tongue base, weight, uh, it's going to always push that number. That is the number of uh, episodes of apnea. It's going to push the amount of noise and the overall amplitude of the noise of snoring the right direction. So uh, these procedures are great because they provide a lot of relief for the patient in terms of sleep quality and health. And they also provide a lot of bed partner satisfaction, uh, making the person sleeping next to you uh, happy that you're quiet and sleeping well. Now, Dr. Slaughter, how long after the procedure will I be able to see the results? You know, it is variable from person to person. I've had people tell me that the very first night we've done the procedure, their snoring is completely gone. On average, most people for the first follow-up, which is three weeks after the procedure, are going to have about 50 to 75% improvement in the snoring and sleep apnea at that point. And by the nine-week mark, which is usually the final follow-up, we're going to have a successful result at that point. Uh, sometimes additional therapies are needed. An oral appliance may be used if the person has a large tongue. So we'll have very significant gain from the nasal procedure and soft palate procedure. And at the nine-week mark, we may measure that gain by doing a follow-up home sleep study. And if needed, we'll add the oral appliance to it. And, um, I, of course, you said, you know, you have high success rates, but people, everyone is different. Right. Exactly. It's variable. So when you come in, for example, let's say your number, the number of times you're having sleep apnea uh, per hour is 100. You're not the same as a person that has 10 episodes per hour. So it's harder to cure you. Let's say you come in and you've got five pounds of extra weight on board. It's not the same as someone that has 100 pounds of extra weight on board. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take it holistically, use an overall approach, look at it realistically. We know that the, the steps we're taking are going to improve you uh, no matter where your starting point is. But we've got great game plans to march people towards success. And will the results last? Yeah, I always say this to patients all the time. As long as we manage your allergies, which I think is important to do afterwards, um, then the nasal procedure typically has a 98.6% long-term success rate. You don't have to have it done again. Your nose is going to stay nice and open. Um, 
the other issue is keeping your weight good. Mm -hmm. So if we fix your nose, we fix your soft palate, and we've had a great result, and then the person gains considerable amount of weight for variable reasons, that does tend to push it the wrong direction. That's an independent factor. It can start making snoring and sleep apnea and come back. So one of the things kind of fun about that is, is that when we make your sleep apnea better by opening the nose and elevating the soft palate, it actually helps hormonally your cortisol, your growth hormone, your insulin hormones, they're all favorable after having that correction by improving the apnea. And it actually makes it easier to lose weight and easier to keep it off. Just knowing that improving your sleep this way uh, would contribute to weight loss. Yeah, it's true. There's a catch-22. If you have snoring, upper airway resistance syndrome, sleep apnea, the hormones get altered and you tend to gain weight in your neck and in your belly. The weight gain in your neck and belly causes snoring and sleep apnea, which causes weight gain in the neck and belly, which causes snoring and sleep apnea. You just end up in this cycle going the wrong direction. Yeah. So when we do our corrections to make the snoring and sleep apnea better, it actually changes the hormones the right direction and makes it easier to lose weight and keep it off. Well, Dr. Slaughter, I mean, just browsing through your website, I see that um, you're continuously posting blogs, informing you know the public about the knowledge that you hold with your practice. So is there anything else that you would like to add? Well, I tell you, there's a, lo- a long list. That's the reason why we write those blogs is because it's uh, what we feel is sort of a service to the community to give inf- information out there available for anyone really anywhere uh, for them to use. In particular, my main uh, message to patients that are snores or if you have a bed partner that's snoring, take it seriously, have it evaluated no matter where you are, Um, It's not normal to have snoring. It may be sleep apnea, and correcting that earlier is important. Dr. Slaughter, thank you again for joining us on the program. Oh, my pleasure. Again, if you would like more information on the sinus and snoring specialists, you can visit their website, sinussnoringent.com. Again, that's sinussnoringent.com. You can give them a call, 512-601-0303. And they are located in North Austin, right on the corner of Palmer and Mopac. And that wraps it up for this episode of Ask the Experts right here on Talk 1370. If you'd like to catch up on any of our shows from the past, you can visit talk1370.com slash experts. If you have a question that you would like answered on our show for any of our experts in the near future, please email us. Ask the experts at talk1370.com. Again, I'm your host, Matt Alvarez. I want to thank you again for joining us, and I hope you'll tune in next week. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.